Hey everyone, and welcome back to Citywide Blackout, your home for music, movies, and more. I'm your host, Max Bowen. Author Anne Whitney Pierce has called Cambridge home for her entire life, and over the years, she's seen a lot happen in the 02138 zip code. In her new book, Down to the River, we see the lives of Boston elite as they begin to fade into obscurity. Anne has so many stories of Cambridge to share, and in this episode, we see what the area was like, both through the eyes of the teen she was then and the person she is now. Anne takes us through the character creation and how the environment of one of Boston's most notable neighborhoods shaped them. This is really cool because I am joined by a fellow uh, Bostonian, author Anne Whitney Pierce is, is uh, with me. She has lived in the neighborhood of 02138, rumored to be the most opinionated zip code on the planet. We are talking about her brand new book. It's just come out, Down to the River. It's got a great story. Great have you here. Welcome to the show, and thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. All right, all right. So walk us through the story of this book. The story that transpires in the book or the story that led to the book? Uh, you know what? Let's go with the second one and then to the first. Okay. Well, um, it's interesting you choose that word because I think, you know, not to start out with one of my weaknesses as a writer, but... Um, my work generally is not very plot oriented or story driven. <laughs> and, you know, to some people's chagrin and other people, you know, enjoy that sort of literature. So, um, but so in that sense, it's not a book that has a lot of plot twists and turns. It's about a family, which is what interests me the most, you know, is family relations, not just nuclear families, but all kinds of different families. And of course that term has a lot more broader, you know, scope of meaning than it ever has had before. I grew, I was born, I've been in Boston, my, you know, Cambridge my entire life. So um, I came of age, I, for instance, went to, graduated from eighth grade in 1967 started high school in 1968. So the years that I was in high school were 1968 to 1971. And just think about that for a minute and think of, of the backdrop of the war and everything that was going on in terms of, you know, racial, political, sexual, all, every, all hell breaking loose um, in what we thought we were wonderful ways because we were 16 and loving it, you know. Um, so, I just felt that I wanted to capture that time in my life because I had lived it so um, just viscerally, you know, and, you know, I, mean, I wrote the book actually a long time ago. And then for years, there were phrases and, and memories and jotting down things so that I could keep it, keep that alive. But, you know, as, as old as, as I'm getting now, none of it's been erased. It's all still there, you know. So I chose this family. It's a fictional family. Everybody's not going to believe that. They're going to think it's all about me and my family, but it truly isn't. <laughs> and I have members of my family who can, I hope, vouch for that. But um, so it's the story of um, twin men who were uh, from a long line of Harvard educated, very Boston Brahmin, wealthy family um, who get married in the 40s live in Cambridge off of Brattle Street, which you, as you probably know, is, is, you know, the street in Cambridge. It's 
what is it, the Rodeo Drive of Cambridge? I don't know what, what you would say. But, <laughs> That's a very interesting uh, comparison, actually. Well, I know, I know. I mean, LA is so different, but I couldn't think of anything else. Maybe Fifth Avenue, whatever. There we go. Um, <laughs> so um, these these men have sort of gotten married and had their their children in the in the forties, uh, and you know when when times were very different, and they each had a late in life child that was who was born in the fifties, who were first cousins. They lived next door to each other in, in, you know, side-by-side houses. And these kids versus their siblings came of age, you know, in the, in the late fifties and well came of age in the, in the sixties. So it's the story of sort of how these kids who are, you know, 13, 14, 15, and have been living this sort of pre-60s life because that's the what their parents have espoused all these years. And suddenly it's the 60s and, you know, all hell breaks loose, as I said, in the family, in the, you know, political world. And these kids are sort of left adrift in a sense. But the way they see it is they just have an inordinate amount of freedom. And that's what it was. You know, I raised three kids in the 80s. And believe me, that it was a different cup of tea. Um, we just roamed free, you know, and our parents were sort of busy with their own concerns and discover, you know, reliving their adolescences and uh, not really paying much attention, you know, to what we, we all were doing. So it just sort of tracks these two cousins who are very close. They're, they might as well be siblings, you know, ha- having grown up with these, you know, as virtual only children and um, just navigating this, this new world of freedom and exploration in all of these different areas. Um, and it just sort of interested me about all of the chaos and tensions and exhilaration that existed, not only you know, in the exterior world, but in, in the family. And so it really is sort of a journey of, you know, these, this family. And, you know, it's, it was a bit of a gamble because the protagonists are teenagers. And, you know, some people see that right away and they go, oh, I don't want to, re-, you know, it's a young adult book or I don't want to read a book about teenagers. But it was particularly important that they were this age um, so that, you know, I could sort of show the evolution and how they, they rolled through all of this together. Um, so it, it basically covers one year, their senior year of high school, which is the year 1969-70. And um, just sort of, you know, I don't want to give away too much, but, in, in, uh, you know, <laughs> but follows their adventures, their escapades, and, um, you know, sort of how people come out on, on the other side. And I guess I'll leave it at that for now. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No spoiler kind of show. No, Go no out spoiler. and get the book. Because there are many. So I don't want to, you know, there aren't too many. Some some writers have tons of spoilers, but that's not me. So there you go. I'll leave it to the readers. <laughs> yeah. All right. You know, I want to talk a bit about Cambridge of the 1960s because, you know, I live there. I lived in the Boston area from 2007 through 2014. So obviously a much different time. But what was it like back then for you? Well, it was wonderful. I mean, we I live and still live. I, as I sit here, I'm a stone throw from the Cambridge Common and Harvard Square. 
and we had a big group of, of sort of kids of families who lived, not all who lived right near us, but uh, we just, you know, Harvard Square was quite interesting and wild and crazy. And we just roamed streets, you know, it was the kind of thing you were in and out of restaurants. We played a game that was hide and seek in Harvard Square. You know, we were there the night that the, the you know, the, the student, the, the Harvard offices were taken over. We were there the night that Martin Luther King got assassinated and James Brown, you know, was blasting from the speakers that they had set up to quell the violence, you know. Um, you know, we, <laughs> there's, you know, a pot and sex and everything. So Cambridge was just wonderful. And on top of everything, there was the river where, you know, you sort of, the river is sort of that, that guiding, you know, along, sliding along um, metaphor, if you will. And we were often on the river too, you know, and there was this river separating Cambridge from Boston. Um, so it was just quite a time. I mean, I, I feel like it's a conceit to say that in some ways because everybody has their own, you know, unique coming of age story and, and with some really interesting, you know, aspects of it, but this was mine. So this was the story that I could tell, mm. you know. I'd like to ask about uh, two roles. Of course, you have your characters, but you also have just the environment that they're in. How do you kind of like weave these two the uh, these two things together? Well, in my case, it wasn't hard because I didn't have to make any of it up. I mean, literally, <laughs> that helps. you know, all of the all of the places and you know scenarios were real, and I have vivid memories of them. So that made it very easy because when I went back, you know, wanting to make, say make a scene that night that Martin Luther King was assassinated and then put my characters into it, I had all the backdrop information. So it's just a matter of navigating the characters through, you know, what I essentially had done, 50, you know, 40 or 50 years ago. Um, and what's interesting in fiction is that the characters do start to, you know, tell, make their own decisions. Uh, and they they would wouldn't always be the ones I might have made either. Um, so it's just sort of it is exact weaving is exactly the right word. Mm. You know, you weave fact and fiction together, um, and people do it to different extents and to different ways. Um, but it's fun. <laughs> that part is fun. <laughs> oh, definitely, definitely. And and I, and I expect that 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 first person perspective really helps you to just paint the entire picture because. You know, you didn't just like know of it. You were like literally there when these things were happening. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have to do any kind of research to kind of fill in the blanks? Because obviously you have your perspective, but you didn't know everything that was going on. No, I, I kept it quite in this in this zip code, not in this zip code, but, you know, really, I didn't stray too far uh, outside of these parameters because it was our world, you know, and it wasn't just one zip code but it was a, a square mile radius, you know, where our high school was, our homes were, uh, you know, Harvard Square, Harvard, MIT, you know, that, that was it. So I didn't really have to, now what I did have to do was just, you know, the hardest thing I think was um, getting the, the, this chronology right, you know, because in, in memory, you, 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 
forget things or you misremember things. And, you know, for instance, I chose to have these kids uh, be one year uh, ahead of me in high school because one of the issues is in the book is that um, Hen, who is the male uh, protagonist, is uh, they've just, the, the draft has just come back. And because of his, his age, he has to draw a number in the draft lottery, which is, as you know, you weren't there, but you probably know, was based on your birthdays. And it was just a lottery. And that day would come out and you'd open the Boston Globe and you'd look for your birthday and then you'd look to see what number from one to 365. And then they would do a call up, uh, say of the first, you know, uh, first 20 birthdays. So that was, that was scary. And, but by the year that we went there, my, my um, contemporaries did get numbers, but they didn't call anybody up from that year because the war was winding down by then. Um, I wanted that threat to be more real and, and more sort of scary for this character. So it's stuff like that. And then you got to check all your dates. You know, he's like, you said they went to a restaurant. Oh, no, no, that the restaurant wasn't there anymore. You know, that kind of stuff. There's but, always um, that person who will catch those mistakes. You got to like check and double check and triple check. Absolutely. There's always that person who will say, yeah. excuse me, but on page 224, when you mentioned the <laughs> yeah. so-and-so place, that actually wasn't there at the time. You're thinking, oh, God yeah. damn it. And, and, you know, when you do edits, you, you make some really stupid mistakes. You know, like you can um, decide in one chapter the guy's wearing green sneakers and then but then you you, you somehow lose that train of thought. And, you know, in chapter 20, he's wearing red sneakers and he's not supposed to be, you know, so just derails, the, just derails <laughs> the entire book, just destroys it. The wrong color sneakers. Right. My God. Um, right. Right. Yeah. You know, since we're talking about it, how are you at the editing process? You know, do you find that you have to make a lot of changes? Did you actually work with a with a professional editor for this book? No, I didn't work with an editor. And, you know, somebody else asked me that and said, isn't that unusual? And I think in this day and age, it isn't that unusual. I mean, the old school writers, you know, with publishing houses would sort of um, take a, a writer under their wing. And then there would be, you know, work between, I mean, you know, you know, famous cases of that. Um, who's who's the guy who uh, who writes about all the alcoholics? Carver, Raymond Carver. You know, um, certainly at my, you know, in my experience, I none of that happens. I did work with an editor after the book was, you know, accepted by the publisher. Um, but that's more really of just a job of proofreading. Mm. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a pretty good editor, so my my manuscript is pretty clean when they get it. You okay. know, I, I can say that. <laughs> I think I can say that. <laughs> there you go. And it should be noted that you have been writing for a long time. You're far from a new writer. You you've you've got uh, two other books out: uh, Galaxy Girls, Wonder Women, and Rainline. But you've also been yep. writing like um uh, short stories for like many years too. So certainly you are old hat at this. I am because of my advanced age. Yes, but the fact not what I meant. The fact of the matter is, <laughs> the fact of the matter is, I didn't start writing until I was thirty. Oh. So um, all of this happened within you know the last thirty years, 
And I, of course, always loved books and words. And I studied French literature in college and um, went on to do some teaching and got a master's in that. But um, it really wasn't until I was 30 that I started writing short stories and sending them out. Um, so my output isn't really that great considering it's been 30 years, but that's fine with me. I'm, I'm very um, at peace with, you know, my, my, the balance that I found between being a writer and a, and a person, which is really important to me to find that balance. Oh yeah, and, definitely. You know, and not have everything revolve around, is this going to get published and who's going to like it or not? I just, you know, that doesn't take you anywhere or mm. anybody. And that kind of stress can, I think, destroy you, too, because you wonder, like, you know, did I just waste, like, the past, like, you know, 10, 12, you know, two years of my life writing this thing only for no one to pick it up? I'm terrible. I'm the worst. I should, you know, never, like, write again. It, there's a lot of, I think, a lot yeah. of, like, mental health issues related to writing. Yeah, there are. But I but I think, really, if you want to persevere as a writer, you, you have to come to terms with that early on. Because if you don't, you just won't last yeah it's not that you won't make it but you won't last yeah it'll wear you down you gotta have a tough skin and you gotta be okay if you know nobody sees it it's sad it makes you sad it makes you angry and frustrated but you do what you do you know you look for somebody who gets it and what will help you to champion the work and i found someone finally you know it's been a long time with this book um so i thank thank my press there you Give go. them a plug. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I want to go back a little bit just to the time period. So um, as you mentioned, you know, at this point, uh, at this point in life, you were still in high school. I'm curious how you viewed what was going on in the world kind of through the th- kind of through like the younger lens. Well, I think it was our norm. Hmm. That's the interesting thing is that we weren't old enough to have experienced life another way. And that's why I gave these characters some much older siblings because they're not major characters, but there are interactions where they, the older siblings, look at what's going on with this younger sibling and thinking, you you gotta be kidding me. Do you know what would have happened if this had been 10 years ago and you know, mom and dad, da, 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 da. So, I mean, now looking back, I see that it was it was wildly unusual, um, but we just took it as as a given, you know. We had all this freedom. I mean, you know, and let me pre- pre- preface everything by saying, you know, I grew up in a you know in a in an upper middle class family. Had a very privileged upbringing. My parents were you know very liberal and. Um, sort of ahead of, ahead of the curve on a lot of issues. And so, you know, it wasn't, it, it's a bit romanticized, I think, but I try not to do that in the book um, because there were, you know, it wasn't all just love and peace and, you know, dancing at Woodstock. It, you know, it brought up, a, it, it was tough. There was a lot of tough aspects to it too. So, Do you see any like correlation between what you dealt with back then and what we're seeing now? Well, I think about this so often. And, you know, again, we don't, I don't want to dwell on anything political or, or you know, get that, go there. But 
I just, as that young person, and even as a person in my 20s, 30s, 40s, I never thought this could happen. I guess that's the idealism of people who grew up in the 60s. It was, it's just beyond my comprehension that this could have happened, that he could have won, and that everything could have been unraveled this way. Um, I just, I can't brought rocket to use a word we used to use um whereas i think younger people you know they they aren't as thrown by it because this has been happening slowly over time you know maybe not so much in my part of the world uh and you know that's a, that's a, a danger when you live in a bubble like this that um you forget what's happening you know in the middle of the country or, or everywhere else mm -hmm. so I've lived long enough now. I have grandkids now and we're, I'm leaving them a terrible world, you know, terrible world. And I, that makes me just feel so sad and bad for them. So you do get a sort of the historical perspective that 50 years is long enough for these cycles to repeat themselves. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying I'm not I'm not saying they're repeat, you know, repeating themselves, but I'm just saying, for instance, with Roe versus Wade, you know, 50 years ago, that was a triumph. Now, you know, now look where we are. That's half a century, you know. Yeah. So. All right. I think it's gloom and doom about it. I know, it. right? I know. I you totally. Said we were gonna try and I totally said that, didn't I? I'm a. I'm a you horrible. Did, you did. You, you know did. what? <laughs> Let us talk about Chicken Hen. These are the two uh, main characters. They're the offspring of Remy and Nash Potts, who are kind yeah. of like Boston royalty almost, like Boston elite. But the train has basically come to a halt. You know, the the money is gone, the yeah. uh, prestige is gone, and. Man, things are not good in their in their family, and they do, and they're and they're kind of in the middle of this almost this like storm of like just you know frustration and um, you know heavy drinking, abusive behavior. How do they cope with that? How do they cope with it? Well, you know, I don't focus as much on them. They're more a reflection of you know being the parents of these two kids, mm -hmm. but um, I think one thing. And I'm, you know, I'm not talking about my parents, but I'm saying, having witnessed my parents and my parents' friends was that they kind of went off on their own explorations during this time. And I think uh, sort of sometimes at the expense of focusing on, on you know, the interior worlds and the, or the family or whatever, it was sort of that feeling that everybody had the right to kind of let loose and let go and, you know, consequences be damned where it was a very different situation for, you know, a 14 year old to have that sense of freedom. And, but really complicated for the, for the grownups who'd grown up so, you know, restricted and with all of these sort of rules and regulations. So, um, I don't know how much coping was was being done during those years, you know, really, um, and how how they reckoned with it. But um, it's sad because it was sad because I think, you know, the parent-child relationship, and I I'm not generalizing, believe me, because 
There are many families who were very close during this time, and I'm very close to my family. But um, the interaction was pretty minimal, you know, in terms of real familial doing things together, sitting down and talking. Uh, all of that was just uh, not at a premium. And it, it, nobody considered it a bad thing. But, you know, that takes its toll on families, I think. And, um, you know, a lot of them were casualties, you know. Almost every parent I know of that generation, they, they were divorced before their kids were, you know, 14 or 15. So, okay. with, right. with some exceptions, but... Let's move on to Nash and Remy. The, these are the folks that are kind of, in a way, they're almost like segueing out of a life of privilege now into a life of having to actually work for a living. You know, they're, they, uh, they, yeah. uh, they, they take what's left of the money, they invest it into a sporting goods store, and just not really a good scene in general for them. I would like to ask, without giving any spoilers, of course, what you think they kind of like represent in the overall story? Well, I think they represent, you know, the people of that age um, who who the 60s kind of caught off guard. You know, they had their families. They, they sort of had this idea of how their life would unfold. Um, and, you know, for better, for worse, some families were doing better than others. Um, and somehow this the 60s was sort of like this explosion um, that just kind of derailed their lives, you know? And so I, I just think it represents sort of the end of that, that old bastion. I mean, you know, who knows what would have happened to that, that family had it not been the sixties. I don't know. That's a good question, you know? Um, but I think it's just really interesting that, um, they represent sort of the, the last of the old guard, you know? And now, as I say, I've lived long enough to know, well, there's, I suppose there's some kind of new guard being built up now. I don't know what that looks like. I don't have enough distance, you know, now. Uh, TikTokers probably, my, that's how it usually goes. Yeah, something. My kids can write the book and tell you about it later. <laughs> there you go, yeah. The, yeah. So, so what you can do yeah. is you can have each like generation kind of write about whoever like the elites in Boston are. So your kids can do now, yeah. your grandkids can oh, do yeah. like later on. You can see how it all... I mean, some, some of that still endures, I'll tell you. I mean, you know, yeah. there's some that you'll never... You'll never get through. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, I mean, I live too close to Harvard to know, you know, the vibes still seep out. Oh, man. No matter how much drama and, you know, bad press there is. (laughs) I can only imagine what Harvard Square, how how much has changed. Because, like, for me, Harvard Square was almost this, like, very artsy center. Because you had the Bridal Theater, of course. Yeah. You had the various music venues in the area. So, always, for me, had a very, like, kind of chill artsy vibe but there was always so much energy in the air yeah well it it still is I I mean I don't want to you know dismiss it it's just that it's always been a cultural you know play you know there's always been the theater and downtown theaters and you know club 47 was there I can't tell you if you get me started talking about music and all the musicians we saw in Cambridge, in Boston, on the river, uh, at the stadium across, you know, Harvard Stadium across. It's just unbelievable. So there was always that aspect of it, you know, museums, the Harvard Art Museums, and, um, 
you know, field trips to the Fog Museum in the early 60s and all of that. But there were also these wonderful, you know, family restaurants and, you know, the cobbler and, you know, every storefront had had a, a wonderful story. We had a Woolworths back in the day in right in Harvard Square, you know, uh, Brigham's where we spent hours and hours, you know, all of these places. So now when I drive through, it's, you know, it's just one gap, Starbucks after another. The only place that's left from the 50s is a tobacco shop called Levitt and Pierce. You know, it's right near uh, Bartley's Burger Cottage, which I'm sure you know about. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, like, I mean, yeah. like for me, I think some of the, some of the highlights of Harvard Square were like the garage, where it had yeah. like you know all the cool stores inside. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, what else? What else? What else? Um, I think it's called uh, Grendel's Den or Grendel's Pub. Grendel's Den is yeah. still there. Yeah, oh, I love that place. There's a really cool uh, ramen place nearby. That's always been really dope. Of course, the Sinclair, one of the best music venues of in all oh, time in Boston. Yeah. My my friend is the drink manager there. <laughs> really? It's quite a job. <laughs> oh, I'll bet. What a great job that yeah, must be. Yeah. Holy crow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I mean, I'm, I I definitely wish I could live in Boston again. Um, but yeah, there were some great times there, some great memories going to the uh, the Boston, the Boston Underground oh, Film Festival. Film festivals, yeah. Oh, yeah. They have the Brattle, the Buff and the Biff, Brattle, I think they were. Yeah. And back at you know back in my day we had the Harvard Square Theater. It was called the University Theater. Ooh. It was on Church Street, and we used to sneak in and watch double features. You snuck into a theater, my God! Oh my God, that's right. not all we did. Read the book, and you'll get a few hints of other <laughs> things we did. <laughs> oh my God, that's so cool! So cool. Um, now. Yeah. Does, does this book go in any new directions for you? I mean, obviously, it's a very different story from the from the first two, but do you feel like you were trying some new things, whether it was types of characters or types of narration or just plot ideas? Um, I tend to write first-person narratives. This is third-person. There were just too many voices that needed to be heard, you know, for me to be I, I, I. It wasn't all about, you know, the I voice. Um so it stretched me in that sense that, you know, really trying to give every character their due and, you know, you can't, you can't, it's hard to do because you only have so much time and I tend to overwrite and write too much. So you have to make very careful choices about what, what you want to say about a character, for instance, with the siblings, you know, I just couldn't give them that much time and space on the page. But they were important, you know, so you'd need to sort of create a scene, maybe just a, a short scene that would pe really pack a punch in terms of, you know, making the points that you wanted to make. Um, other than that, in terms of stretching me as a writer, uh, I don't think so. I actually wrote a book after this that in which I was trying to stretch myself because I wanted to try and write something more commercial, which is difficult. <laughs> it's just not, you know, my style. I wish it were more commercial. Um, so, you know, we're not talking about that book here, but I did feel I, I tried to stretch myself there to just lighten up a little and, you know, try to make some good jokes. And I think there's some humor in this, in Down to the River too, but it's a lot darker and more subtle. <laughs> so, uh, okay. Yeah. Reading the background for the story, it sounds like this one kind of sat on the shelf for a little while. Um, 
I'm curious as to kind of when you um, when you like eventually brought it out again, did it change a lot? Did you have to like update like a lot of things to get it published? Not this most recent time that I unearthed it. I unearthed it a couple times. Um, I wrote it several years ago. I had an agent at the time. She tried to sell it. It wasn't a good time for my kind of fiction. You know, everything that we used to, all of a sudden there were Amazon reps at the uh, acquisition meetings, you know, and who were, so bottom line, you know, is this book going to make you any money? No, this book, and this book is not going to make me a lot of money either. You know, I don't, I don't expect that, but um, so um, just to give you an example of, how things work the original book down to the river was twice as long and had an entire another set of characters interweaving with with this family that was the conception in the beginning um my agent decided that part of the problem was it was too long too ambitious too complex so I spent a whole year disentangling the two threads, which was just the most tedious, talk about forgetting about the red sneakers and the green sneakers. You know, once you get rid of that, uh-oh, what happens to that? So I did that um, and then she tried to sell it again and still had no luck. So that was disappointing to me. Um, if this book ever makes any headway, I want to I want to release the original with the uh, you know with the other thread in it. Um, you know, it's just an interesting side note. Um, but so then I just got discouraged, and then I started working on the novel Rainline, which I then published, um, and got another agent who kind of tried. But you know, once you have an agent who's put it out there. That's kind of it, at least for a, a bunch of years, because it's a community and they all know each other. So you know, it's a network and they all know each other. And, you know, that's that's that. They've made their decision and, uh, the, you know, so be it. So um, this book really did sit around for five or six years. Um, and then I wrote this other book that I mentioned that I was hoping to be more commercial. And I just got sort of tired of it. And I pulled out the other one and I just, this was a few, a couple of, two years ago, I think. Cause you know, you this the book got uh, acquired by the publisher almost two years ago. It takes a long time to get, for that to happen. Uh, but yeah, so I dragged it out again and I just reread it. And I said, this is good. You know, I, I wanna try and get this out there again. So third time's a charm. There you go. I will. I'm a little surprised that actually it was such a challenge to get published because I would think a book so entrenched in Boston history that some local publisher would be like, oh, yeah, definitely pick this one up. No, no, you'd think so. But there are just too many writers, too many good writers out there, too many great stories, no money for, you know, uh, the small presses have a hard time staying, staying afloat. Oh, yeah. Uh, The big the big presses you know aren't interested in regional fiction they want you know something with a very broad appeal um it's fun to you know to be a canterbridgean and and write about my my home and have people in this area really get a kick out of it you know but 
that doesn't sell books. That doesn't sell enough books to impress yeah. any any big publishing company. So mm. that's the reality. Now, when it, when it comes to like what you write, do you think a lot about okay, will this will this sell? Will this is it like is it like the right time? Will you should one should think about that. I I never did, and I you know I it's only time and good fortune that makes this the you know coming out of this book is timely because it's 50 years later that is not something i envisioned <laughs> i didn't write it thinking well i'll wait another half a century and then maybe it will be in vogue again you know <laughs> um but i i mean i think you know more commercial writers do keep their their finger you know their thumb on the pulse of of what's uh, right up, you know, what's in the news and what's happening and what's on people's minds. And that's smart, you know. For me, it just, my ideas come from just ideas and people and they're sort of timeless in that sense. Um, the 60s book is of course very particular because of the era, but um, I never really think that logically. <laughs> I wish I did more, but I don't. <laughs> eh, but I think at the same time you get you, like you got to write what's passionate for you. You know, you got to write yeah. what really drives yeah. you. I think if you just say, "Okay, will this sell?" You're not writing what you yeah. want to write. You're writing what the market yeah. wants you to write. That's just for me, nah. You know, I, yeah. Um, well, you have to be good at it too. Yeah, there are definitely some folks who can just see the way it's going, and just say, "Okay, oh, yeah. you know, oh, yeah. uh, like." Uh, Crank them out. Yeah, they, they, like they like they just know exactly what to write. It's almost like a sixth sense. It's creepy. Um, yeah. One thing I saw reading this book is that you dedicate it to uh, the Avon Hill gang. I'm curious who yeah. that who that is. That's the group of people that I spoke of earlier that mm. um, we all, it was families, maybe two or three kids. Uh, you know, back in those days, everybody had three or maybe four children. And um, so there was a group of about, um, you know, 30, 40 people. We all went to the same high school. A lot of us went to the same grammar school and had been friends, we lived in the area. Um, I'm giving a reading actually in, tomorrow night in locally, and there are gonna be several members of the Avon Hill Gang there. So it's gonna be fun. Um, and these were the kids that we did this really, and this is the other interesting part, was that these kids were my family. We were all each other's family we sort of took the place of, you know, what had been happening in the fifties back in the nuclear family. You know, these people became who you hung out with day and night and had all your adventures with. And, you know, I can't tell you how many people, you know, sort of liaison, it's almost sort of, it's not the right word, but, you know, uh, incestuous, but it it's crazy. I mean, I, um, the father of my kids, who I was with for 25 years, we went, to, we were in the fifth grade together. You know, I knew him since the fifth grade um, and on and on and on, you know. So um, it's, that's the Avon Hill gang. Avon Hill was a beautiful hill right in our neighborhood where we skateboarded and, you know, played street hockey. And it's an, it's an actual hill. And, and um, we just sort of got this reputation as the Avon Hill Gang. So <laughs> the Bass Gang, Cambridge. They were sort of my family. So sometimes you you dedicate it to your family, but I'd already done that in my other books. So I get you. I get you. That's Did, 
It's like <laughs> I just I just kind of just see like just see like you and your friends just I just kind of like hang on camera and and everyone just like knows who you are. Well, it was kind of like that. Nice, <laughs> nice. All right. And well. as a side note, my brother who went to Harvard um also and he's a year older than i am so you know he he's the age of my my uh, characters uh majored in sociology at harvard back in the day and he wrote his senior thesis about the avon hill gang wow <laughs> uh, I, to this day i don't think really we were that interesting in the in the big scheme but um anyway he found enough to you know to graduate from harvard talking about it all so you never know you never, you know. never know right all yeah. right and so what is next for you uh you mentioned that you have a um a book signing really soon but uh do you have more like books in the works do you have any more like uh stops along a writing tour perhaps oh yeah i um if you let me plug my website you know you can find them all there i have a lot of um in-person events a lot of zoom events and radio interviews and can I say my website? Go for it, of course. Yeah, definitely. Okay. It's just my name, which is Ann Whitney Pierce. Don't forget the E and the uh, Ann. AnnWhitneyPierce.com. And it's all laid out there. So um, I'll be, I'll be uh, going around New England quite a bit, you know, keeping it local mostly. I have a daughter who lives out in Washington State, so I'm going to do a reading out there, which will be fun. My grandkids are out there. But um, and as for writing, um, I'd like to get back to writing some short stories. I think I'm maybe even a better short story writer than I am a novelist, but I love the novel as a form. So um, be working on those. And then, you know, of course now I need some downtime to kind of think about my next project, but I've got something, I've got some ideas mulling, milling and mulling around in my head, so. <laughs> We'll get out the yellow pad soon and start jotting them down and then, you know, toss it all on the computer and see what we got. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, Anne, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. The book is fantastic, folks. Down to the River. Get your copy. It's out now. You go to Anne Whitney Pierce. Don't, uh, don't forget the E at the end of Anne.com. Find all the information. Get the other books by all means and yep. leave a review. Yep. You know, leave some stars, leave a written review, leave a big old like thumbs up. All the interaction. Great. I'd love so to hear from, from anybody and everybody. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Follow her socials, like, comment, share. You know the drill, folks. I talk about this all the time. You know the drill. Yeah. Interaction, it helps. It takes like two seconds. And Anne, definitely looking forward to the next conversation for the next book. Okay. Thank you so much, Max. It's been a pleasure. You're very welcome. Hi, this is singer Kate Eppers, and you're listening to Citywide Blackout. Picture this. You finished your first book and nailed it. The plot, the characters, all the twists and turns. This one's a winner, and all you need is the right cover. If you've got my art skills, this is the part where panic usually sets in. Enter the cover villain. Hero to writers everywhere. Founded by noted author Remy Flagg. Cover Villain focuses on composite image covers for science fiction and fantasy writers. Give them the details, and they'll craft a cover using popular trends that everyone will want to see. But wait, you say, I've got ideas of my own. No problem, as Cover Villain loves a good collaboration. As they say, our goal is to put a little villain in every cover we make. Want to know more? 
then head to CoverVillain.com and follow them on Facebook and Instagram. Okay, everyone, that brings this episode to a close. Big thanks to Anne for joining me, and definitely check out the book, Down to the River. I've been reading it, and I gotta say, it is so very cool. You can follow the show on Facebook under Citywide Blackout, and Twitter and Instagram under Citywide Max. Find the show wherever you check out podcasts, as well as every Saturday at 10 p.m. on Boston Free Radio. As always, keep those ears open.